Welcome to Cyber Synapse, the podcast that's creating connections through cyberspace with candid conversations about cyber and tech-related issues with your host, Kath Nibbs. Do you know your GDPR from your ISO? Is your business cyber secure? If not, give agency a call on 03455 760 999. You can visit their website at www.theagency.com. An agency is with an I, not a Y. Welcome to this week's episode. This week I'm joined by Amy Auburn, uh, DPhil over at Oxford University. And this has been one of the episodes I have been um, uber keen to uh, record, mainly because uh, this is what I've been uh kind of wittering on at you all about for long enough that we need the evidence. The evidence has been looked at um, by Amy's research. We actually talk about the uh, grand scale of, you know, data sets and how things can be skewed um, and how how that can have an effect on uh, how things are reported, particularly the um, the narrative around the um, iPhones are creating a nation of zombies kind of narrative that we've had um, previous to this. Now, one of the things that happened was I actually did my introduction and it's now really quite late on um, a Thursday evening just before the podcast goes out. So I've kind of sat down and decided to re-record the introduction due to the fact that um, this week has been full of, uh, well, not just this week, the last week, the week before has been full of yet another hyperbolic, um, fear-driven narrative, fear-driven dialogue of um, this bloody Momo challenge. Um, now, I haven't named it in a blog that I've written this week uh, on purpose. And what I am going to say is for parents who are listening to this, for therapists who are listening to this, for teachers who are listening to this, and for any other adults, please talk to your children about hoaxes. Don't talk to them about the hoax, because what you will do is create the curiosity for them to try and find out what it is, to then have conversations with their peers. And one of the things we know about young people is they like to exacerbate the stories. And my therapy practice over the last particularly fortnight has been, not the game by the way, has actually become inundated with this fear-based, um, it's, we're back to the scaremongering. And actually what's been fascinating as the the kind of researcher that I am in my, my therapy practice, wow, we are in a, an intelligent species, but the way that I've watched what we've done over the last two weeks has been really interesting. Um, we really do buy into our own emotions. We do react from uh, a place of um, fear. We react from a place where we feel incompetent. We react from a place where we're just not paying attention to ourselves. So that's kind of driven just before uh, I, I introduce you to this week's podcast. Um, so please listen to what Amy has to say because it's really important about how things get skewed. And obviously I'm just cutting in here to put the Momo challenge, um, the Momo game, the Momo theory, the Mo- whatever it is that we're calling it. And I'm kind of putting it in just before we begin talking um, because as you'll see, Amy did a massive piece of research and looked at a massive amount of data and did not find what was being scaremongered 
And I'm pretty much saying that's the same for anything that you read on the internet. Don't trust it. Not unless you know it comes from a reputable source and you can definitely check where that person has got their evidence from. So check, double check, double check. Okay, um, that's it for this week. And um, I hope you enjoy the podcast. As always, um, head over to patreon.com to um, basically put some money in the pot for paying for my PhD um, because I will be offering free therapy to the children that are currently being traumatized by harms online. Guess where that's going to head. And uh, yeah, um, I think that's it. As always, no good at promoting myself. I add these bits in every single week and um, I look forward to the two episodes that are coming up, which are going to be gaming specials. Again, evidence-based and um, take care for now. See you soon. Welcome to Cyber Synapse. This week, I'm joined by Amy Auburn, who I'm extremely excited to speak with. And she is a college lecturer at Oxford University in experimental psychology. Uh, so yes, I've got another academic on. However, this is a topic which is um, basically something I've been, uh, let's say, banging on about for a while. Um, so welcome, Amy. Um, Welcome, Noel. Thanks for having me on. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm, I'm so stoked to actually start talking about your piece of research. But before before I do that, why why do you do what you do? So why experimental psychology? Um, it's a difficult question. Um, I kind of fell into experimental psychology. So I studied. I I went into my degree in my undergrad degree wanting to study physics and, and maths and then moved into psychology in the kind of final year when I was doing my work and I did an undergrad project in looking at large-scale social media data and from then on I was kind of hooked because I found that there was so much which was unexplored but also so much that was explored and or narrated in a way that I didn't agree with um, as somebody who had used, for example, social media since their teenage years. Um, and so I started doing a PhD on that subject area. Um, so why I do what I do is probably because I felt misrepresented by what was being told in academic literature. Um, yes. And I felt like I could do something. Fab. Oh, brilliant. Oh, now that is just a succinct way of saying because people were getting it wrong. <laughs> but that's well, it's not quite what we're saying about the academic world. Um, so I, I've kind of moved from the quant to the qual. So that's that's actually where I wanted to kind of talk to you about your piece of research. Mm -hmm. So not so long ago, um, for those who um, weren't at the Children and Young People's Conference that I presented at or, or haven't been following some of my stuff, um, this is the piece of research that I use as a defence tool when I'm surrounded by practitioners who say, well, the mental health of young people is being affected by the iPhone or it's because of social media. And um, the piece of research that you did ended up in nature, didn't it? it was, it's, or is it going in nature? Nature, human behavior, so subsidiary. Yeah. But yeah, I always say nature is human behavior. Yeah. <laughs> but no, it, it was, it's been a massive, um, a massive paper for me. So I'm very happy. Yeah. Yeah, I think as, as somebody who's sitting in the background trying to explain to non-academics and non-researchers that actually this is a big deal. This is a really big deal in terms of um, what you actually looked at, how you looked at it. Um, I'm actually blown away by some of the stats tests that you did because um, mine, mine's at probably undergrad level um, and then I've moved over to doing the talky stuff. So I, I, I thought what I wanted to ask was 
how do we translate what you've found so that the people who listen to this podcast and, and obviously watch it can understand the difference between causation and correlation so that they can understand the kind of statistics and, and what it is that you actually found and why really the, the number of pieces of research that you looked at and the figures. So I'm just thinking that the level of data set and why that's an issue. There we are. Just you can talk about your research. <laughs> well, I think I think anybody following this area as a parent, as a teacher, as an academic, as a policymaker would agree how much just conflicting information there is out there. Um, every day we get a conflicting headline. Once we say that social media is harming, is incredibly harmful. The next says it's okay. The next says it might be harmful, but only for girls. And, and actually, if, if science is working properly, we should be honing in on a common answer. But in the last five years or so, there's been no honing in on a common answer. It's just been kind of very conflicting from the time from five years ago to now. And so the, the paper that has been published is out now is really tr trying to have a look at why that might be the case. Um, yeah. Especially because a lot of this work is actually done using similar or even identical data sets. So the US and the UK government, they um, invest a huge amount of effort um, and money into tracking the well-being of their population. So in the UK, we're in a very privileged position in having um, the government funding um, data set collections like the Millennium, the Millennium Cohort Study, where they follow, kind of, yeah. I think it's about 15,000 or 15,000 of each. Um, somebody will correct me, <laughs> um, but I think it's about 15,000 children um, from when they were born at the start of the millennium throughout yeah. their whole life. So we've got a cohort of children that were born in the year 2000 who are now 19 and have really lived this technological innovation revolution mm. part of, of their life and with things like social media, with things like smartphones. Um, so naturally this is a, an incredible resource um, and these children are asked loads and loads of questions. So if your child is part of this questionnaire, you'll probably, you'll be getting a yearly questionnaire with, I think, almost 400, 500 questions. Um, school nurses will be getting questions about your child. You will be filling out questions about the child as well. <clears throat> so in the end, there's a really rich data source and almost, you know, I would say every week I read a media article, which ends up being being based on research which was done on a similar data on this data set or, or a similar one. So why I'm saying this is because these these data sets are extremely powerful. So there's a huge amount of children in there and a huge amount of data to analyze. And so it's naturally been very interesting for researchers to go in and see, well, how does maybe amount of digital technology use affect the well-being of kids in this data set or in similar data sets in the US? Yeah. Um, and these research on these data sets underlie some of the most well-known claims about social media use. So we had in the mid 2017, we had the publication of a uh, article in the Atlantic, which was called "Have Smartphones Destroyed a Generation?" and it pictured a kind of girl falling down with her smartphone through the air. And it was actually the most read science article in the Atlantic of 2017. 
um, which was kind of advertising a book which would then come out by Jean Twenge, um, a professor in San Diego, yeah. um, which was say, using two of these data sets in the US to say that there's been a huge drop in mental health in, in for children. It all started around the dawn of the smartphone, smartphone use, and we should be really worried because there is a negative correlation between the two. So those children that use more smartphones also feel worse. Um, However, so these data sets are open, so I could download them and I've been working on them for over three years now as well, or almost three years, not over three years. Um, and when I was downloading them, I started realizing how small changes in the way that the data is analyzed can give yeah. very different results. So for example, when we're trying to answer questions about teen mental health, it's really hard to actually define what teen mental health is do we what what does it actually mean <laughs> um and these data sets because the children fill out or adolescents at that time point fill out tens and hundreds of different questions there were about 20 questions yeah. in the data set which could pertain to some sort of well-being so if i were a researcher not really knowing what is a validated question and, and what is in where. Um, there are about 20 questions I could pick and choose from um, to measure well-being. And I found that actually looking back, researchers had not consistently used any single pattern of questions to define what well-being is. Yeah. So while some researchers used four questions and, and four maybe more to do with self-esteem, others use seven questions to do with self-esteem and a bit of depression. Some really looked at depression, but all of them were kind of labeled under well-being. But if I would define well-being in slightly different ways, actually the correlation, so this negative correlation between digital technologies and well-being would change. So sometimes there would be no correlation at all that significant. Sometimes it would be more negative. Sometimes it would even be a positive correlation. Um, so... I think a key aspect which we don't really oftentimes think about, which we need to consider when we think about scientific research, is that oftentimes we forget about data analysis, so the process of analyzing data, uh, or we, we treat it as if it were a tool which just finds an effect which is in the data, kind of like a magnifying glass. I, I take my statistics, I hold it onto the data set, mm -hmm. and then I see what's in the data set. But actually what we're seeing here is that slight differences in our data analysis can change the results that we find. So it's not really a magnifying glass. It's actually a tool which changes what we see. There's no kind of, yeah. um, there's no ultimate truth <laughs> um, that, that the data is trying to tell us. And so then I developed, um, I am, I kind of developed and took further a statistical method called specification curve analysis or multiverse analysis, where um, instead of just running one statistical test, for example, defining well-being in one way, I said, why don't, we, why don't I rerun my statistical test for each possible definition of well-being? And actually, maybe for each possible definition of technology use as well. And, and actually, I'll add in control variables as well. So what should we account for in our model? Should we account for gender or should we not? Should we account for... Um, whether a child is a disadvantage or not. And bef before I bore you even more about um, statistics, no, no, I think... I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I quite like this. Not you, but the, the listeners. 
Um, yeah, so, so more or less, I found that there were almost millions of different ways in which you could have analyzed this data set because they're so powerful and they're so large. Um, and there would have been thousands of papers that could have been written showing a negative association between digital technologies and well-being. But there could have also been thousands written showing a positive association and thousands which actually showed no association at all. If we take the average of all the possible tests, there is a slight negative association between digital technologies and well-being. So um, if I get, for example, if you would tell me that a teenage girl uses X amount of digital media in a week, I could probably predict about 0.4% of her well-being. Um, and it's a decrease of 0.4%. Um, <laughs> so it's very, very small. <laughs> um, and so then I just end up discussing about whether, you know, just because something is statistically significant and that's often used as a barrier to report about it in the media, to cause concern, um, to, to be part of the public conversation. But statistical significance is pretty orthogonal to actual significance in real life. Um, and so actually this small negative correlation between digital technologies and low well-being um, is there. But the question really is if we should be worrying about it as much as we, as we are at the moment. And there's a lot of new work coming out, hopefully in the near future, taking that a step further. Um, but it definitely, I think what it says for, especially for parents or teachers or policymakers, is that if we take the average technology use and the average child, we find a very, very, very small effect that doesn't seem to be important. That doesn't mean that there might not be children who are negatively affected, just like it doesn't mean that there might not be children that are positively affected because naturally we're taking the average. Yeah. Um, but it's, what it is showing us is that technologies doesn't have these ingrown, extensive, and just horrifying negative effects on mental health that we often read about. Yeah, I think uh, for me as a, a practitioner, when I read um, Jean's article, um, I kind of looked at it and just thought, I'm not going to tell you exactly what I thought, <laughs> very many sweary words. Um, and I, I, I actually looked at the children in my practice. So I think the bit that I'm really, really excited, and this was why I was so keen to kind of get you on and, and talk to you, is I, I spend a lot of my time being advocates for the children and young people in practice and saying, okay, so you've brought a child to me with, um, and there's so many psychopathologies labelled on children when they turn up at my door. So it's gaming disorder or they're always on their phone, Kath. Um, so a couple of episodes ago, I did a... Um, I had a conversation with somebody out in Brunei who I know, who's a school counsellor out there. And what we talked about was how quite a lot of these young people are actually managing the mental health of other people, you know, other young people who might be on the other side of the world. And that's one of the reasons why they stay on their phones for so long. And I think for me, I haven't been able to find that kind of questioning within the, the literature so far. It's not to say that it isn't being done. But for me, there was something about, well, mental health, and I'm, I'm really loving the fact that you've said there is no real definition for this. It's a little bit nebulous. And how do you describe what is mental health or mental wealth or mental well-being? Mm. I think we've got so many different names as well. Um, so I talk about emotional well-being, psychological well-being, and, and, and it's, it's very difficult to... So 
uh, when I, you, when you I, were saying that there's a difficulty with these different definitions of mental health and I think that's a key thing and yeah. something when I talk to policymakers is often you know are we talking about mental issues you know mental ill health because that's yeah. very different to talking about mental health as maybe a sort of more well-being sort of um, thing and and how we define mental health will change the conversation we have about it and I think the problem at the moment is we're not defining it in the public conversation and so everybody is probably thinking about something different when we're yeah. having the same conversation. Yeah yeah and, and that tends to be mostly the conversations that I have with parents coming into the, the therapy room mm -hmm. so I, I do a lot of parent work and we'll actually say, okay, so tell me what your child is doing. Well, they're on this and they're on that. And we, we talk about what's, what's the impact? How does it affect you as a family? What is it that you're trying to achieve? And what is it that you're trying to put the boundaries around? Because often that's the issue rather than the use. So mm -hmm. for me, there's, there's lots and lots of parenting issues. Now, um, I, got, I got brought into a conversation on LinkedIn the other week by an e-safety expert saying, that he was going to go and talk to um, a radio show about um, digital addiction, um, screen overuse. And it was quite interesting that I said, okay, again, you're using terminology that that's, doesn't explain anything to anybody. What is digital addiction, which isn't a thing, um, but what is overuse? Because actually for one family, it's not the same as another. And it, it's, I'm noticing there's a bit of an overlap in my qualitative world to the quantitative world but the media uses the qualitative words to scare using the quantitative data if that makes sense yeah i think i think what what i see is that um that is really down to the individual in the end and we're not taking the individual in, into account in either the media reporting or in most of the quantitative models because in the end we're taking the average technology use effect on the average child mm -hmm. so overuse will may very much depend on the child and the type of technology it's using um, and so we naturally still have very little conclusive results because in the end a, a metaphor I often use is is that of kind of some sort of type of nutritional question for example mm -hmm. kind of eating sugar in that we people wouldn't ask a scientist to say exactly what effect will eating three tablespoons of sugar have on my child because they know that that's very much dependent mm -hmm. on the type of sugars um you know are we talking about chocolate cake every yeah. every hour are we talking about a granola bar after sports class you know these things are very different also on the type of child a diabetic child can be hugely negatively affected by eating just a small amount of sugar while somebody who you know is playing a lot of rugby might really need it in in their life and I think that sort of nuance is missing in our debate about technology use because once we think about the different types of technology use and how they affect the child and also the different types of children and what what they might need I think we'll probably see that most of them have coping mechanisms and and they can balance their life and they they can be fine there might be some that are actually negatively affected and will need to find ways to highlight those but at the moment by um saying that every type of technology use is negative for every type of child um we're oversimplifying a very complicated matter um so and i don't think the concern is very productive as um, such yeah 
I tend to, and it's now it's now definitely a plagiarism from Pat Markey and Chris Ferguson. I use mm. their correlation about ice cream sales and uh, you know violence in the heat. Mm. Um, but I, I, are you aware of Jocelyn Brewer? Who so I did an interview with her ages ago, but she talks about digital nutrition, and and mm-hmm. she talks about having balance as you would do with food. Mm-hmm. Um, I think. What I got excited at then was kind of my the the inner geek in me said, ah, this is the thing that I talk about. Um, uh, so I'm a, um, a what they call a biohacker. So I've had my um, nutrigenomic results, and I know that certain foods have certain effects on me at certain times, and that my children um, they have very different DNA and nutrigenomic needs, and so on and so forth. So it becomes a constant. Um, well, it's, I've taught them how to crit- critically think. So um, they're both in their twenties, and it's um, it's a very um, atmospheric household when you know we're talking about things of proving and disproving and showing each other um, mm. lots and lots of details of you know. Well, here's the evidence for this, um, and I, I think I'm actually going to plagiarise your um, your metaphor there in terms of when I'm talking about sugar because I think that might be a way for parents to understand it and and particularly practitioners. Um, obviously, when I put it in my book, Amy, I'll reference you and, and kind of say that you. <laughs> no, don't worry. I think I think it's it's helpful because I don't. I think it's really hard to be on the side of the the table saying that tech use is actually not that bad because then all of a sudden we're always put on the side of the table saying that tech use is inherently positive, <laughs> and it's not the same. Um, yeah. Saying that the evidence is not there and. And we're finding mixed effects. And I think the sugar metaphor is helpful because in the end, it, it leaves it open that there might be those that are that show negative um, effects, but we actually don't know that yet. And we don't know what causes that. And the way that the quantitative research side should be developing is more into that direction. So, mm-hmm. you know, we know that across the board, there's not much of an effect. So it can't be that more than half of the people show a very negative effect um, because then we wouldn't be finding that on average, there is very, there's a very, only a very, very, very small effect. Um, but yeah, I'm currently starting off with some research funded by Barnardo's. Um, so looking especially at children with disadvantage um, from disadvantaged backgrounds. Um, and I think more and more we need to move into that direction and seeing, okay, well, if in, can we maybe see how different children are differently affected or different technology use um, affects children differently? Mm-hmm. But in the end, I think it will be very much in the, in the qualitative area because it will be very much child dependent. And I think it's often part of the situation around the child, um, other issues in the child's life. Um, and it's really hard to statistically and quantitatively go into such detail. Um, so I do think that different sorts of research and understanding and knowledge about children needs to work together, yeah. especially also knowledge from parents who know their children as well, you know, as how, what I want to say is like a thousand times better than anybody else. Um, and that's why I also really like how the Royal Society for Public Health and, and Pediatric and the Royal Society for Pediatrics and Child Health um, how their guidelines on screen use are now very much based on on the parent making decisions about their child because parents yes. know their child best. And if we don't have the evidence at the moment, that's that's kind of where it should be, at yeah. least in my opinion, as somebody who doesn't need to interact with teenagers. 
Well, I mean, as, as I've put, there, there is this thing about screen time, which I find, um, uh, I, and I've, I've, there's probably about two pages that are devoted to it in my book about kind of why mm. screen time is, again, one of those nebulous statements. But also, if, if I just look at the amount of time that we probably spend in front of a screen doing our job, actually, we, we could fall under the remit of it having a, I mean, at times I do feel it really does affect my mental health when I'm staring mm. at journal after journal, and I don't know what I'm reading anymore. Um, but I, I find this term screen time was kind of what, what, what was getting confused in the, the therapist I was working with. So uh, apart from the fact that I did present yours and Andrew Shavilsky's research and kind of said, these are the people to be paying attention to, mm. you know, there's even an institute dedicated to the research about this in this country. And I think that's not, that's not known about enough in terms of um, lay, lay people, the average practitioner, um, because in, in my world, we don't do a lot of research. And I think actually the number of therapists that work with children could probably come up with a huge amount of data that, that's really, really rich. And, um, and I, I think that would be extremely helpful. I happen to be looking at one particular issue and a lot of my issues are always tied into, um, uh, so I, I don't use um, disadvantaged, I talk about attachment. So I, I come very much from the attachment theory place and I'm looking at children who are traumatized, children who have attachment difficulties, children in the looked after system. And I know that we, had pieces of research um i think there was one done by internet matters not so long ago that showed the children at most risk are ones in the looked after system and i think we've also got like the, the chief medical officer's report which you know that came out with a really nice handy guide um although i will give a slight disclaimer across to the side that actually the people we work with in therapy don't usually fit that idea of sitting down having a, a family meal together mm. um there are issues around sleep and for me that's that's the biggest issue that I deal with in therapy so there's there's a lot to be looked at here um what do you think yeah. for, and I'm, <laughs> there's, I'm, a, there's, I'm there's sure work it, for 5,000 PhD students <laughs> um and, and yeah it's incredible how much work still needs to be done and I think that's also something that we can communicate better Okay, um, so I have been, um, somebody said to me actually, Kath, um, your videos are really long. And I said, uh, yeah, that's because they're podcasts and podcasts tend to be about <laughs> half an hour to an hour, you know. So um, what I was going to ask you was, it might be slightly out of your remit because it's around um, the paediatrics side of things. But mm. what, did, what did you think to, so it was the Amer American Associations of Paediatrics that were giving guidance on screen time. And on the back of that, um, I think the debates I got involved in on social media, I'll call them debates, they weren't debates at all, um, were around <clears throat> children, uh, infants are becoming addicted, they should be limited to this amount of time on this particular platform. So I'm mm. just curious, what did you think to that kind of advice that, you know, infants or young people should only be on FaceTime? Or I think... Um, I think there's very little evidence that we have about teenagers or even less we have about infants and, and how yeah. infants react to, to technology. And in the end, it's then down to these professional organizations to think about, do we go via evidence-based policymaking where we look at the evidence and we decide on kind of what should be recommended or do we go on kind of precautionary principles? So, there might be a negative effect, so we will um, we will recommend a, a limit. And I think 
the problem at the moment is that there's a lot of, like the American Psychiatric Association, they're going on the precautionary principle, but then they're not bothering to test whether that's actually helpful or not. Yeah. Um, so there's times when I, I see, when I talk to policymakers, where I say, well, it's, you know, in the end, I would understand if you go with a slightly precautionary principle, like the chief medical officer here in the UK, the chief medical officer said that. Uh, children should not be using more than two hours of technology use at one time. So mm -hmm. kind of saying well, there should be breaks involved. We don't have evidence that that's the magic number. <laughs> um, yeah. But hopefully people will test that going forward. Um, and the chief medical officer is very interested in the evidence and has had an incredible amount of interaction with researchers. So if you can read those guidances as a parent, I think that that has been very much informed by the work that's going on and it's very detailed. The American Psychiatric Association has always taken a more precautionary approach. <laughs> um, but then the problem is, is that they had this limit of two, before two, no, no technology whatsoever, and then after two, limited to two hours. Um, but then they did stop giving out that sort of recommendation because they found that it was impossible for parents to implement a two-hour limit. Mm -hmm. on especially on adolescence um and that that is and i think that's also the issue is that you need to it needs to be clear to parents uh, and practitioners how little evidence there is out there and that for example a two-hour limit doesn't have any evidence as such attached to it um or it doesn't have the extensive amount of evidence that you would expect for some sort of policy um, be put into place. We would never do some sort of health policy on the basis of more or less no medical research whatsoever. Um, and that that's why the American Psychiatric Association changed their policy um, later on to say that it's more about the quality of screen time and parents should monitor the quality. But naturally, the 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 kind of quantitative limits stuck that they're not even adhering to any more themselves. Um, but this two by two rule has now had a huge impact. Um, and there you can see how somebody, some professional organizations putting out limits before there's any evidence for them can be quite harmful because they, they're entrenched because people really like numerical limits. Even if we know that screen time can't be measured properly. So a two-hour limit is is very difficult to, even if it's, for example, um, specific to certain social media platforms. So I think it just needs, I think from the scientist point of view, what we can contribute is just saying that there's not a lot of evidence out there and that in the end, um, it is a judgment about an individual child taking their individual use into account and that a number can never summarize that or at least not yeah. the number that we're seeing at the moment. Um, yes, when you mentioned social media platforms, what just popped in my head is, um, I think I think this must be going back a couple of years, I was writing for Internet Matters and they, they sent me the research that said um, most children get a smartphone age 10 and obviously social media platforms are um, mostly age 13. And I thought, well, how do parents decide that? Do they sit there and they suddenly go, right, you're 13 today, it's your birthday, here's a smartphone? Or do they kind of say, well, how about we have a conversation and you can have a smartphone before you're 13 and we'll talk about the social media platforms? And again, it's that level of numbers. Um, so I'm not going to name which relative it is, but one of my relatives actually gave their child a phone on their 13th birthday and said, right, now you can go on Facebook. 
And, you know, bearing in mind what I do as a job, I kind of looked and went, that's really interesting. Um, so in, in terms of why, why on the 13th birthday? Why not before it? Why not after it? You know, and it was because that was what Facebook said, 13 years of age. So therein, Sorry, therein I'm just was being the, interrupted. Okay. Hello. Problem with booking rooms <laughs> that I booked it uh, for an hour and then somebody wants to set something else <laughs> 10 minutes before. Um, yeah. But we have five minutes to wrap things up. So hopefully we'll get there. <laughs> Sorry to yeah. the listeners. But I, what I wanted to go on to the 13 issue, it's the same with alcohol in that we have a very kind of strict limit in our society of kind of 18 being that magic moment where where everything seems to be okay um but we do see that different cultures um in different countries for example around europe treat alcohol very differently they all have the same limits but they all have a different range of problems around teenage alcohol use because they have a different culture around it and and how you approach it how you lead your adolescent towards um alcohol use over kind of the, the time before the 18th birthday, the time after 18th birthday. And so I think, again, even if there are concrete limits, there, like the way we demarcate what is mental health and what is mental ill health, it's a very much a, a boundary which isn't really there as such almost. It's artificial and we need to think about how we can introduce adolescents um, to things like social media use in a healthy way and not go by um, an artificial limit as such. Yeah. Now, for me, that comes down to um, uh, the the synopsis of all the episodes that I did last year with anybody who was e-safety. We just kept saying communication, communication, communication. Mm. That's what it is. Parents and children communicating. But also, you know, I really do wish that the media wouldn't do what they did, particularly like with the the, um, CMO's report, which by the time I'd actually uh, tweeted at you that morning, my Facebook profile, my messages, and I was head in hands going I can't do this anymore I can't do this um because I think most of my friends now are like oh Kath have you seen this Kath have you seen this Kath have you seen this there's another one happening at the moment um so I'm dealing with that in the background and it's it's more about the media misrepresenting and misreporting what is out there and I think I wish we could have taken a snapshot saying um, which is what I've done on, on a lot of the research, like the chief, chief medical officer, there isn't enough research to make these claims. And there's a little bit of, you know, let's just calm down. Let's, let's look at it <laughs> carefully. Let's take the edge off the fear mongering and let's look at it reasonably, sensibly and over time. I think because then, and I think this is something where I was in a talk two years ago by a leading professor in Germany who said, what this fear-mongering media coverage might do is it might actually create its own narrative in that it stops parents communicating with children about their technology use. It causes so much fear that that conversation is shut down. And that then when something negative happens online and because life is happening online, there will be negatives happening online, just like there's positives happening online children will not feel able to communicate that properly. Um, And so we will might be finding these negative effects at some point. So it's very important to keep the the communication open. And that's, I think, the one thing that, there's two things I'm concerned about the fear-mongering. The first thing is the shutting down the conversation. The second is policymakers investing millions of pounds into something that's treating symptoms and not causes or something that is treating and something that doesn't actually affect mental health, but is some sort of 
um, can has some sort of connection to it that's not causal. Um, and I, I do think that we're currently going into the, in the wrong direction here, but there have been changes in the last few months. So I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic. Oh, what a lovely way to come towards the end, because I know you, you've got somebody probably chomping at the, <laughs> at the room, room door handle at the moment. Um, but what a lovely way to come to the end, because actually I, I absolutely concur with you. I have such faith in human beings that we will get to where we need to. I think we've just got to go through this bumpy section first. And whilst that's happening, I've got to educate parents. I've got to educate practitioners. It's why I'm doing the podcast because this information is going to be timeless in terms of coming back to it and saying, uh, I think this happened a couple of years ago. We did talk about this. Um, yeah. Finding that lots of the episodes are and it's, I think it's great um, what you're doing. And it just reminds me of a time I was, I was on Women's Hour on Radio 4 and I kind of said, you know, the, the question will be whether in 20 years we'll be looking back on this conversation laughing, like we're laughing about how we talked about bicycles ruining mental health or Dungeons and Dragons ruining our children. Yeah. Um, or whether in 10 years we'll be looking back and saying, actually, this was an important conversation. And, and to be honest, the evidence is pointing towards the former, <laughs> um, but we'll, we'll never know. But it's important now to keep the information going out and to keep that communication open to, so that parents can have and practitioners can have a good conversation about these things. And so uh, it's yeah. very impressive what you're doing for this. <laughs> Uh, well, thank you. I managed to squeeze it in amongst everything else I've been doing. Um, um, you know, like like the person at the door, um, I think we've both got to go anyway. So thank you very much for giving me your time, Amy. And thank you. Um, I'll, I'll be in touch. I'll, I'll give you bits and pieces. But in, in the meantime, thank you so much. This is going to be such a brilliant episode. podcast was edited by Rory Kavanagh, an audio enthusiast and music producer.